Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm Paul. I'm Eric. And I'm Arlo. And each week, we discuss two to four episodes of the Nickelodeon animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series The Legend of Korra. Eric and I have seen both series before, but this is Arlo's first trip to the world of Avatar, so there will be spoilers, but only up through the episodes that we're discussing tonight. Uh, Although tonight, we're not discussing episodes. Uh, Last week, we finished up our run through the original Avatar The Last Airbender series, Uh, but before we move on into phase two of the podcast with The Legend of Korra, uh, we're going to discuss the first volume in Dark Horse Comics' official tie-in graphic novel series that bridges the two shows. Uh, Volume one is called The Promise. It's written by Jean Luen Yang, who uh, has previously written American Born Chinese and Boxers and Saints, both published by First Second Books, and and the Japanese art duo known as Gurahiro. Uh, do we have any banter we want to do before we start talking about the book? I don't. I'm, I want to talk about this book. Okay. We're we're emotionally stable after a week's recovery of no more uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender. I, I I'm I'm trying. I'm trying. Okay. This really patched over some of my um, <laughs> some of my my sadness. I will say this is like wow. We have more Avatar, and I, I don't want to. We'll, we'll get into it, but it, and it's at a working at a level that I that I wanted Avatar to work at. Like most of my complaints of the show were centered around things that this does. So I'm feeling really good right now. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty dense. We, uh, we were talking before we started recording about how like my original plan for these comics, we were just going to do uh, like a bonus episode. This was just going to be a bonus episode to bridge the two shows, Avatar and Korra. And we were going to talk about uh, the first three volumes of the spin-off series, The Promise, The Search, and The Rift. And um I you know, I was telling them all along that they're really they're not that hard of a read. I mean we can talk we can talk about all three of them and it'll be a nice way to lead us into Korra. And uh obviously on air, on an episode of this podcast, they talked me out of that <laughs> and that convinced me we're gonna do one of them at a time. And um good thing that they did. Because last night when I reread this, I was like, what the hell were you thinking, Paul? <laughs> Why did you think you could talk about all three of these in one episode, in one week? Because uh, it's it's pretty dense. There's a lot of stuff here for us to talk about. So, Indeed there is. Um, you're, both, you're both newbies to this, uh, so I'm going to change it up just a little bit. I'm going to go to Eric first for his reaction. Oh man, I get to go first for a change. This is exciting, <laughs> terrifying. Um, so this was yeah, th- I knew these existed, and I've been wanting to read them. I've been a fan of um, Jane Lin Yang's work since um, uh, American Born Chinese, which I just love. I think it's just fantastic. And so th- I had not read these, but I had not read them for no good reason. I just had never gotten around to them. So this was my chance to finally read these, and I had heard they sort of bridge Avatar and Korra. In some ways, but I wasn't sure exactly what that meant because it seems to be a big amount of world gap between Korra and Avatar. Mm-hmm. Little did I know this really does bridge Avatar and Korra on some really important levels, and I was really excited to see that. I mean, right out of the gate, and I think um, uh, Arlo will see. I think pretty quickly how how deep of a bridge this really is. Um, but this really covers a lot of the things that I felt were missing from Avatar getting into deeply. You had these issues of uh, Fire Nation colonialism and um, the difficulty of that, and then we sort of glossed over the fact that there were going to be post-war issues. I mean, the show acknowledges that, that, but we still have to get the super happy ending Mm -hmm. at the end. 
and this really digs into those kinds of issues. And you know it's going to right out of the gate because within the first 10 pages, Zuko asks Aang to kill him if he goes <laughs> evil and starts acting like his father. Right. He forces Aang to promise him to kill him. Yeah, which is... Uh... That's ostensibly the promise of the title, but I, I could argue there are actually two promises that the title refers to. But Interesting. I, I'm going to want to hear that. I, um, so, yeah, I thought this was fantastic. It delved into the characters. It delved into the world. There was just it, And it felt like Avatar. On top of everything else, this did not feel like a lot of spinoff material does when you get like alternate media stuff where it kind of doesn't feel exactly like the source. Mm-hmm. This, this could have been an Avatar miniseries easily. And it would have, you, without any changes, and it would have fit in perfectly. So I'm I'm so enthusiastic about this book. I thought it was fantastic. Right on. Arlo? I liked it. I don't know if I'm as enthusiastic as Eric. Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, though I think, so I, I want to open the, this up to you guys. I think the reason I struggled with some of it, and I definitely agree with Eric that I love that it delves into these issues of, colonialism and the difficulty of maintaining peace after the war I think that's fantastic um, however I, I, I struggle with a couple things um, one the the uh, the bit where in the first 10 pages Zuko asked Aang to kill him that seemed like I, I don't know like that was a big that just sort of that happened really quickly for me and then we immediately jump one year later that was I think, uh, Paul, you and I were talking about this, and you said you'd forgotten how rough it started. And I don't know if that's what you were referring to. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I mean that's a little bit of it. Mostly I just, I, I had forgotten. So, so these things that we're discussing were originally published. I've mentioned this before. They were originally published as three, as three parts. So each one of these graphic novels was published as a sort of a digest-sized volume one, volume two, and volume three. Uh, and then those are collected into this, uh, the library edition volume, The Promise. Um, and I just, I feel like the the book one portion of it, uh, Gene Yang and the artists were still kind of finding their feet. Like Gene was still getting the hang of writing the character's dialogue. And, it, you know, the story feels a little rushed in a couple spots and then it kind of drags in a couple others. But by the end of it, by the by the third book of this volume... I think he's got them nailed. I agree with I, that. I, I definitely think the the book improves as it goes on. I wouldn't disagree with the fact that the first book is a little um, the pacing isn't quite right. And if I sound um, unconcerned with that, it's just because it I'm willing to accept that kind of thing um, if the character story and thematic stuff really pays off. And I feel like it did. And I'm guessing that to a certain degree. If he had a certain number of issues that he had to fit this story in, he decided to give the time to the payoff right. and not so much to the setup. And I kind of understand that because you needed this promise. And if you had spent an entire issue building to that, then you only have two issues to pay everything off. And yeah, and you lose some of the fun stuff in the middle, like Toss Metal Bending School, which is really important to future stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I do agree. I actually agree with those complaints. It's just that given the overall. Um, picture that this paints i it ultimately just didn't matter to me and i i was i was definitely satisfied uh by the end of the the book uh for sure but the, the question i want to ask you guys uh because i think you know, maybe talking this through will help me with it a little bit though i came to understand um his perspective especially uh toward the end of the third book when he has that conversation with katara there were times when i thought ang was being a little too militant 
about keeping the nation separate, especially given, as Katara points out to him, you know, Guru Patik taught him that, uh, you know, separation is an illusion, and he just spent all of this time trying to to unite everyone. And now I, I like the the ideological differences between him and Zuko. I like that conflict, but there were times again I felt I, I don't know. This could just be me. I want to talk about it. Um, that I. Th- I felt he was a little too militant. At one point, Aang actually says, uh, harmony requires four separate nations to balance each other out. You can't have balance if one nation occupies another. Um, yeah, and I, I, I agree with what you're saying, Arlo, although I did... And Aang's militant stance occasionally does seem to be one of the little sort of hang-ups... Hang-ups? Excuse me. Um <laughs> throughout the story, but, uh, you know, I feel like maybe this is a little bit, again, we're reminded at this point, he's 13. He's a 13 year old kid who's had his entire culture wiped out. And, uh, now that the war is over, he kind of, some of that kind of gets to sink in a little bit, maybe. And here's his chance to, uh, to separate all four nations, which is what he, I guess he felt like maybe they were fighting for when they were trying to end the hundred years war. And, I don't know. It's it's understandable, I suppose, but it is a little tricky to work. See, your this head really, on. this really works for me actually. And the main reason it works for me is because I think it finally. So the whole it, it, suddenly Ang's role as Avatar has become the real role of the Avatar, which right. is actually a lot more difficult than what he had before. It was easy when it was Ozai and you had to take down Ozai. That was the easiest of all the Avatar's missions. Is you have a clear bad guy and the bad guy needs to be taken down. But the real role of the Avatar is to find a way to bring balance and peace to the world, and that is a cold and distant role. And it's something that's brought to him right away when Zuko asks him to basically play the role of the Avatar if he goes off the trail. And so I like that that what we finally see is Aang's, I don't want to say prejudices, not so much in a way that he's like, He's um, more in the fact that he had a world that he grew up in, that he accepted that he accepted that was the way the world was meant to work. And suddenly, without a clear enemy to fight, a lot of Aang's assumptions and prejudices start coming out in his attempt to solve this problem. And I actually really like that because I think that makes a lot of sense as he grows. And suddenly it becomes a matter of how does your ideology work as Avatar in a real world where there isn't a clear bad guy anymore? So I I really liked that aspect of this. That is an excellent point. <laughs> you've kind of you've uh, you've recentered my my uh, position on this entire book, I believe, Eric. That's a it's a fantastic point. That yeah, this absolutely is what the Avatar like like most of his past lives. This is probably what they did. Very yeah. very few of them had to fight you know, a, a world-changing war like he did. They they just had to keep the peace between four different nations. And I, I think I agree with what Paul said. That was, a, was an excellent way of putting it. I think maybe the reason I struggled with it a little while reading, and again, like I said, by the end of the book, all of this stuff that I had qualms about landed for me. I, again, I, th- I, th- I think it might be the, the, the pacing in, the, in the, the first volume. Like, it may, maybe it just it happened so quickly that... Uh, because talking about it, it makes sense, but Aang so quickly becoming so like hard line, like the nations have to be separate, didn't quite sink in for me. Um, it's 
Does this have to? Maybe this has to do with the fact that most of this takes place after a one-year jump, and it's a one-year yeah. jump following a decision that they all made to separate the nations. Aang has had a year to decide this is the way that the world was going to work because everyone agreed with him when they made right. that decision a year before. And I think that maybe the the build-up to Aang's thing gets lost in the year jump. Yeah, and I, and I think I, I think that might be it. So I, I did struggle a little bit with the the one year later uh, jump, but. Uh, but I feel like I'm I'm doing a lot of complaining when I actually really really liked uh, this book. There are a lot of things I did enjoy about it. So so one thing I think is really interesting in what we're discussing is sort of this idea of um, do the nations need to be separate and the fact that the book ultimately comes down on the side that the world has changed and that's no longer possible or even ideal and that they need to find a way for that not to be the hardline case anymore. And I'm glad. So Cora definitely we pick up in a world and I'm not going to spoil it. We pick up in a world that is much more mixed than the world we had in Avatar. Like, we definitely come into a world that is uh, integrated in a really interesting and different way. And one way they could have dealt with that would have been just to have it drift that way. You know what I mean? They could have just had it do that. And I really appreciate that this book deals with the conflict that would lead to a world like that. And explicitly focusing on it is, I think, the way to get from one world to the other. And I'm glad that they focused so hard on how difficult it would be for nations that expected to end a war and either be in control or separate and not to be allowed to do that anymore. So I, I'm glad that Gene actually dug in to that idea. And that's really interesting to me because, um, so, so again, obviously, being the newbie to both shows, I've not seen any of Korra yet, but we're reading these in the big uh, oversized hardcover annotated uh, editions, and I wouldn't say there are any spoilers in the annotations, but they do sort of indicate uh, in some places where Korra goes. And so so I'm going to treat this as not a spoiler for, for those listening at home, if you, like me, have not seen Korra. Uh, but uh, Gene Luen Yang in the annotations does mention how um, he intentionally wanted to deal with this because uh, Korra is very much more about, like, mixed, mixed nation, uh, a mixed nation, a mixed world. Yeah. We, specifically, he calls out the fact that there are a lot of um, cross nation marriages. Yeah, people, mixed, mixed nation families. Yeah, which which I think I love that this goes right into that with the um, yeah, what's what's the name of the town? Udao. 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 Yeah. And we get right into that, and I like how much the the like the central family of the mayor just completely screws with everyone because it's such a because you can't just separate that like as soon as it sounds so simple to be like get the fire nation out of the earth nation but when you start digging into a colony that's been there for a hundred years and an a society that maybe hasn't integrated healthily but has integrated it's not quite as easy just to say we'll rip that apart and no one knows quite how to deal with that reality and i really like how much that messes with everyone in different ways yeah, because I think if at the end of like in, in the finale of Avatar, if they had mentioned like in in Aang's big speech, you know, and we're gonna you know remove all the Fire Nation colonies from the Earth Kingdom, like in the spirit and the context of the the TV show in that finale, I think even me like as a viewer, I would have been like, that's a good idea. You know, you just you just beat the Fire Nation. You don't <laughs> want the Fire Nation. You know, the, those those bad people living there. And I and I do like that this digs into that like. It's it's and I we've had situations like this you know in in our past it's you can't reconcile that like just because these colonies were imposed upon the Earth Kingdom a long time ago doesn't mean that now they have built a life that they has as I think uh, the mayor's wife says 
you know, these colonies have they're Fire Nation colonies, but they have roots in the Earth Kingdom. The, the so one of the things I love about this, and I really thought I was going to not pay attention to them, but I found myself reading them were the annotations, and the annotations are great because you get something like. Right in the middle of the book, it's actually in the Toph chapter in the middle where she's she's trying to defend her school against a Fire Nation um, teacher who wants to take the school back over. The, co- and the Cobra Kai. The Cobra, totally the Cobra Kai. It's totally the Karate Kid um, <laughs> episode. And in the thing, he and the, one of the side notes that Gene makes is that, you know, colonialism on the surface is bad. And we have to acknowledge, acknowledge that it is awful and causes massive damage to everyone involved. Um, and you want to see the colonialists get their butts kicked. On the other hand, when you deal with something like Yudao, it starts getting more complicated in what that means. So he wanted to first have a colonialist whose butt could be kicked <laughs> and, and then dig into the uglier realities of a hundred-year colony and what that society looks like. So I really like that he not only built it that way, but I love the way he described how he constructed that to like, like address the fact that the Fire Nation colonies are awful. And in a perfect world, ripping them out is absolutely the right thing. But and it was easy with the new ones. But that those older ones, it gets a little more difficult because there's a reality of the human beings involved. So, anyways, I, I love the annotations in this were wonderful, and I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to them on the future volumes. And I think that was such a great way of of dealing with both sides of it. So yeah, we get the we get to experience the joy of watching a Fire Nation colonialist get his butt kicked, but then we also acknowledge the harsh realities of, of what the, uh, what, what is it called, the Harmony Restoration Movement? Yeah. Yes. Uh, of, of what that means. And I thought that was really clever. So how good, how good is the Toph chapter, by the way? Can we, maybe we should start with that because it's the, <laughs> sort of like one, the one detached plot line that is thematically connected, but that was just a delight. I mean, Toph is fantastic anytime she's on screen or panel. So, yeah. And, and in the footnotes, Gene says this was his favorite chapter to write because it's filled with so much Toph-alicious goodness, I think is what he calls it. <laughs> yeah, to t- he, I think he says somewhere that Toph was his favorite character because she has such a she has such a defined voice. Like he had to he had to work to put himself in the in the to, to speak with the voices of the other characters. But for him, Toph just came really naturally. And, and of course, Toph is the perfect person to put in the Karate Kid thing. And I, but I love that it's her and Sokka teaming up to try to teach their people metal bending soon enough. Yeah. I mean, you get stuff like motivation bending. Yeah, Sokka, motivational bender. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Sokka's line, ah, oh, who are you kidding? You just like telling people what to do. <laughs> you said something important just happened. It did in my brain. <laughs> so great. And her... Uh... Her lily livers, yeah. her students, uh, Hotan, Panga, and Mu, the dark one. <laughs> that was great. And I, and I like how uh, in the annotations uh, uh, he says that uh, he had to the, – the whole tortured poet uh, transformation became crucial when he realized that he was basically writing the – the male version of May. Yeah, yeah. And I felt that actually in the first yeah. couple of books. I was like, is he – really just is talking like may and uh he's even a little bit androgynous in his look so <laughs> you know it, he kind of looks like may I, but the going to the tortured poet thing was great as soon as he's like in third issue metal bending while like reading his horrible poetry yeah is is pretty it's wonderful it was, it was it was like a chris claremont x-men comic <laughs> it was it was um <laughs> and I, I loved his real name moochie gucci lapucci the third 
That's, that's <laughs> a great name. That's awful. That's a great name. <laughs> and I I love the way that like Toph had picked her students too with her space her yeah. space bracelet. Yes, the space the space bracelet and and then Sokka's, "Oh, I miss you space sword." <laughs> but he has boomerang. Yeah, he got boomerang back or, uh, or got a new one maybe. I don't know. I choose to believe it's the same boomerang. Okay. I, I'm I'm fine with that. I it's hard enough to have lost space sword. Having to have a new boomerang would have just been terrible. I do like when he hits them. Like he's like they're like I have a boomerang and everyone's like, well, big deal. Ooh, and boomerang. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't wait, I need to find it because I think the sound effect is Katang, isn't it? Yeah, it is Katang. Oh, yes. that's beautiful. That is beautiful. It, it it's a really fun thing. I love that you know I'm I'm a sucker for the training like the training and sudden um, unleashing of ability. So uh, it's easy for me to buy into a story like that when it's like focused in this way. Do you know what I mean? Like the the training montage leading to tournament thing mm-hmm. is a, a trope that I can totally buy into. So this worked really well, and I love yeah. that. I I love the trashing of the fire, the obnoxious and scary Fire Nation students. And I I love that. Uh, so. It's interesting to me that you said Toph's metal bending academy is important for Korra. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, it is. So yeah, I, you'll you'll see that in the first episode. Okay. Well, so. I, I I look forward to that. Uh, but yeah. I also oh, go ahead. And everything I've said tie, that I'm saying, like mentioning about tying into Korra, is first episode stuff. I should note everything is like first or second episode. We'll hit pretty much everything that I'm. I'm sort of insinuating within the first two episodes. You know, I'll, cool. I'll tell you, I, I referenced a couple times, I hope I'm not derailing you here, although, but I, I mentioned a few times during the over the course of the podcast that uh, the jump from Avatar to Korra, for me, was a little difficult because Korra is such a different show. Um, and it, it always, every time I've watched Korra, it takes me a little while to kind of get back, to get into the flow of this new series. Um, it would have been... I would have appreciated having this bridging story the first time I yeah. watched Korra. So hopefully this will maybe help you ease into it a little, Arlo. Yeah. I, I kind of like, it's going to, I'm going to have to show some restraint not to dig into the the next two. Like that's the only downside of us not doing these as one episode. <laughs> I, I have, I'm looking at them right now on my bookshelf and I want to start reading them right now. Um, but what I was going to say about Toph's Metal Bending Academy is that I really love that, um, you know, she splits off from the group and establishes her own school. I love that role for her, and I I still love and I'm you know I, I don't know if this is this changes in the future, but I still love that she sort of just told her like family to the to, to peace out, fuck off. <laughs> I still I still am like a big fan of that. Like she doesn't need them. Yeah, and she hasn't gone back at all. I mean, there's no no concern whatsoever to go back to them. And she's clearly, I mean. She's not really the runaway anymore since she's got a damn school with her family name on it, the Beifong Metal Bending Academy. Yeah. So, so like at this point, it's like up to her to her family. Like if if they want a connection there, it's yeah. up to them because yeah. she she's right there in plain sight. Yeah. I love that, and I think there's a moment. I'm trying to find the page, but I think there's a moment when she gets really dispirited about after they try and uh, terrify her students into becoming metal benders uh-huh. um, and it doesn't work she has this moment where she's kind of bummed out and she's talking with Sokka and she sort of relates to her parents in a way that makes her uncomfortable because she realizes that you know she's she's putting these kids as she said uh, through pressure and pain uh, to become something that she wants them to be which is exactly what her parents uh, tried to do with her trying to make her like a, a rich little society girl 
Um, and I love that her arc in this uh, book is by the end, she realizes, you know, you can't do that to someone, but also she was uh she helped these kids find out who they were no one had ever taken them seriously before um and that's that's something that Toph always wanted she always wanted someone to take her wants and needs seriously and so now she's able to do that for these other kids oh i really like that it all works out i also love that the uh, motivational poster she has hanging in her academy is do you need a beating Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> that's brilliant. It's <laughs> perfect. So tough. It was. It was a great. It was a really great like middle middle chapter. You know, at first I was like, "Is this a side story?" But it was <laughs> the perfect side story. I think. By the way, Paul, that's so tough. Is that a spinoff we can get? Yeah, I would watch that. Yeah, I, I, w- I would watch that too. A- another spinoff podcast too. Man, we should have named. We should have called the show. That's so tough. That's so tough. <laughs> Um, uh, so, all right. Do we have any more to say about Toph? I want to talk about some of the other characterizations. Sure. Um, Yeah, I think it's good. Specifically, I want to talk about Zuko. Um, although he's kind of a, he's sort of the big deal of the book. Maybe we should start with, uh, Aang and Katara, maybe. I I, I totally agree with, with Sokka, man. They gave me the Oogies. Yeah. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not into it. Like, it's weird. It's it's weird for you? Yeah, like I I'm more and more now I'm like the Zutara really should have been a thing. Oh man. Oh yeah. That makes been... so much more sense. Like it's it's weird. Like I'm <laughs> I'm I wouldn't say it makes me uncomfortable, but I, I'm a little disquieted by it. It's it's weird to watch. Um it's mo- it's mostly that they keep calling each other sweetie or sweetheart or whatever. Yeah. It, that was yeah. like they are they are the, they are the obnoxious couple you don't want to be around. Yeah, exa- exactly. Exactly. And I guess that makes sense. But it's hilarious when we spend like two two books of this with Sokka getting the oogies from watching them and then Suki shows up and he immediately goes over and starts macking on her. <laughs> yes. And so. Toph's explanation of what the oogies are was pretty classic. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And and I and I do like that uh, we, I mean that the book does show why K- Katara and Aang are good together because Katara, as always, is the smartest one in the room, and Katara is the first one who you know has that epiphany that you know it's what Aang is like. She 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 understands what Aang is trying to do while also realizing Aang is trying to do the wrong thing, and basically tells him that and that leads to him you know realizing the error of his ways and i really liked that conversation between the two of them yeah i that that is i mean as as much as issues one and two did give me the oogies the relationship stuff pays off really interestingly when she kind of forces him to acknowledge like we're the same thing Mm -hmm. yeah dick (laughs) (laughs) and i and i love that because i didn't even realize that the whole group is mixed nation yeah, like, the, the Aang gang is nothing but mixed nation uh, people. I the, I did not even realize that it's the Claremont X Men. It it is. It really is. <laughs> um, yeah. In fact, uh, I don't have the page open, but uh, when Katara sort of makes that whole thing explicit when she when she says, you know, it's not just oh, I just turned right to it, page one ninety seven. Uh, so we get sort of the flashback of 
the scene that Katara had seen earlier in the story where uh, the mayor and his family were standing there. And the mayor obviously is Fire Nation. He's wearing his Fire Nation clothes. His wife on the right side is uh, Earth Kingdom. She's wearing Earth Kingdom clothes. And their daughter, Corey, between them is wearing, I think, I love her costume, her outfit. It's it's she, it's the green and yellow Earth Kingdom clothing but she's got like a shawl over her shoulder that's the the red and yellow of the fire nation it's beautiful so there's a flashback panel of that and then the next panel is sort of the the vision that katara has of her future with ang so right there you've got fire nation earth kingdom uh water tribe air nomad and each each couple has a child between them yeah yeah that so that was great it's beautiful um, and I also like how in the annotations, Guri Hero, uh, they, I'm not going to be able to pronounce that. Guri Hero? Is that? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Sure. Um, they point out that they had initially thought of giving Aang a beard mm-hmm. in the flash forward, but then we're like, ah, oh, Katara wouldn't know what he would actually look like. So, my in my headcanon, Aang grows up with a like a full mountain man beard. <laughs> Future <laughs> Aang turns into Grizzly Adams. But is his head, <laughs> yes. is his head still shaved? Mm, yes, I'm gonna say yes. Okay. So have you have you gone back to accepting bald arrowhead Ang? Do you I have. do you still miss I the have. hair? No, I I I think I've moved on. Okay. Uh, uh, and well, so so I guess if we're talking about the arrowhead. How about Ang's uh, fan clubs? Yes. Yes, which the annotations inform me is <laughs> like the start of the the air acolytes, which are apparently in Korra. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I, there's actually something in the core not, not that I I've kind of forgotten about it as soon as I read it I was like oh right 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 the air acolytes I, they had sort of um, that aspect of the show I, I had kind of forgotten about so I was excited to see the start of them and it reminded me about them in the show yeah um, I yeah I, I like that I, it's the first uh, chapter of the uh, Aang fan club we meet is uh, insane yeah and then the second chapter seems much more reasonable and I like that they come together at the end um, I, I I love how they react to being called out too. Like Ang Ang calls them out on a, on a on a on a fair level, you know, like on yeah. on the fact that like like, and I like that he had no problem when it was like they had painted their head, like yeah. oh your fan club, so whatever. Like I, but then as soon as they had like tattooed it, but not earned the tattoos, that 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 triggered something about the loss of his people in him. And I like that their reaction was to go out and earn it once the once the war started yeah, like as soon yeah. as the battle started like their reaction was to prove to ang that they were willing to earn what they had wanted to go for and that, that i i kind of fell in love with the air acolytes at that for, point. for just for just a second i was going to come i was going to not really complain but i was going to call out that there's there's maybe one too many themes running through this story with uh when you add in these the fan club and ang's concern over you know the misappropriation of his culture but that's not really a separate issue. That really that still right. kind of ties into the whole colonial thing. Absolutely, and I I, I like that the the book deals with uh, cultural appropriation like that. And uh, in the annotations, Jean Lu and Yang mentions that uh, it was inspired by, uh, I guess, in 2011 there was a, a group called Students Teaching About Racism in Society or Stars at Ohio University uh, that brought attention to a bunch of racially offensive uh, Halloween costumes. And so he wanted to sort of dig into that issue. And I think it absolutely ties into the colonialism. That's a great way to, like, recenter it on Aang. And I think it actually 
makes his reaction for me it made it a little more understandable like i I started to see like it reminded me of um i I think it was a season two episode where he goes to one of the air temples and finds that it's been like you know converted Mm -hmm. uh and relics of his culture have not been you know cared for and he becomes very upset about it and i think tapping into that makes his uh militant stance on the nations having to be separate that it made it make more sense for me and, and in fact, it, it really hardens his stance. Like yes. that, that becomes the crux on which he decides that this Harmony Restoration movement needs to happen. That, that if this is a sign that there's a problem and it needs to push. And I like that it, in a lot of ways it ends up becoming like a sign that like it's the only way for him maybe to teach his culture at this point uh, to, to open up a little bit. So I, I like the way that it opens up an uncomfortable conversation. Again, just like the colonialism thing where on the surface there's a simple answer, but um, on on the ground with these people, it's a more complicated conversation. And it plays right into Aang's attitudes and then plays into his change of attitude at the end. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you used the word uncomfortable because... Uh... It's appropriately uncomfortable for me. Like I completely get it. It makes it makes total sense, and uh, it sh- it could not have gone any other way. But uh, even watching him, like even after he's given the speech to Earth King uh, Kue, who by the way was never named in this series. This is the first time he gets a name. Uh, even after he gives him the whole speech of you know this is a this is a whole new world. We're not fighting against. Uh, colonial you're not fighting against colonialism you're fighting against an entirely new world that's trying to be born um it's still a little uncomfortable on page 224 to see him accept like like i feel a little bit of his inner struggle when he has to embrace when he's given the speech to the air acolytes and he has to embrace the fact that yeah my culture as it was is kind of gone and if i want to preserve anything of my my history we need to you know move forward we need to it needs to be different. So it's it was a little weird for me to know that these air acolytes, these kids, are not the monks. They're not the Western Air Temple monks or any of that. They're just kids that he's now going to teach their ways, and it's gonna it's gonna look different going forward. Yeah, it's there's a lot of great stuff, and I in this and Ang Ang's journey. Since we're talking about Ang, leads to maybe the most decisive moment of Ang deciding it's a new world, which is cutting off Avatar Roku. <laughs> Yeah, I want to. Yeah. I want to ask about that. Um, so I'm. I'm still just the slightest bit iffy on the whole uh, the prayer beads or whatever. Like it's kind of a cool idea, and I, I love the footnote where uh, Gene explains how he came up with that idea. But Aang has never had to use those before. Like he's always had access to his past lives without having to have a prayer bead with a with Roku's medallion on it. So the whole destruction of the medallion, in my mind, doesn't actually sever him from Roku. I kind of see this as um as Morpheus's tools mm-hmm. in Sandman that it's not needed, but it's a focusing tool, mm-hmm. and that there's a symbolic aspect to this right. by by breaking this. It's he absolutely could go back into the spirit world or whatever and talk to Roku. But this is, this is his, cause one of the things he was talking about was he goes through the prayer beads and it, as he hits a, one of the emblems, it, if there's something that that avatar has to say to him, um, right. it's there. So I think that by burning Roku's, he's not necessarily giving up his ability to use it, but he's kind of saying, I don't want your advice right now. Yeah. Like I don't, I, it's your, your counsel is not really relevant 
to what's going on. So I, I, I don't think that it would stop him from it, but maybe it makes it less simple to talk okay. about. All right, that's cool. Yeah, I, I was I was into it. I liked it. And I, and I like the fact that he does, um, even if it's not like a, a permanent, like, removing of a permanent severing of his ties with Roku I do like that it you know it fits the theme of you know the 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 past is the past and that ties into what I loved so much about him uh breaking out of the avatar state in the finale which was you know Aang isn't his whole this whole deal uh much like Buffy before him, and I have not made a Buffy comparison in a very long time, uh, is that he's not beholden to these ideas of what the the Avatar was in the past. Um, you know, it, it's a whole new world. The world is different, and he has to respond differently. And I like, and I, I like him doing that. You you know, one of my big complaints of the finale, since you brought that up, was I did not, I didn't buy into the way they handled the Hang doesn't want to kill problem. Um, and a lot of levels, partially because Ozai is so odious that it's it's like it makes the conversation kind of interesting. And I mean, it makes the conversation kind of shallow. But I like that this digs back into it, and suddenly we get a very serious conversation about Aang's willingness to kill. Because now we have a situation where Zuko is not evil, but does he have to kill him? Is this the right decision? And Aang continually trying to give that over to the Avatar state to make it simple for him. And so the, as much as it didn't work for me, or at least didn't work entirely for me in the finale, this conversation about Aang's willingness to kill, I thought worked fantastically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite Aang moments in this entire book is uh, his final talk with Roku. Uh, starts on page 217, and uh, where he's basically, when he says, you know, when you told me to contemplate the world, what did you expect me to picture in my mind? This is a fantastic moment where Roku is it's back to that whole be decisive, uh, you know, you're the avatar's job is to serve the world and all that. And, uh, I love the fact that Aang personalizes this and actually points out, you know, what did you expect me to think when you told me to think about the world? I, you know, I, I pictured my friends, I pictured Katara and Sokka and Toph and all that. I can't, I don't know how to contemplate the world without first thinking of the people I care about, including Zuko. Yeah, yeah. that was fantastic. It, it really it really personalized a lot of the struggles of being an avatar of how detached does he have to be and um and he finds a way on this one and actually what i like is it's not so much as he found a way to deal with it without killing is actually that he found that that the situation was more complicated and zuko actually had something to say mm-hmm. that maybe zuko wasn't handling the situation right maybe zuko was going hardline in a wrong way too but that zuko had realized something that ang was trying to deny and that that was why killing was the wrong decision because he it was closing him off from listening well okay that gets us to um like my favorite moment from the this entire book uh which involves zuko so let's go back and let's talk about zuko yeah um again as with everything Zuko related at this point. This hurt my heart. <laughs> this whole book, like Zuko is just such a poetically tragic character. He is, he is the dark one of uh, the anger. Yes. Um, so we get to see Arlo. How did you feel? Well, both of you, cause this is your first time. Uh, how did you feel uh, getting to see more of uh, Zuko's discussions with Ozai in prison? I thought it really worked. Um, and be, 
yeah. <laughs> uh, I really liked it. I like how it picked up uh, from that scene. Uh, one, I like how it picked up from the where's my mother scene. In mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, notes, Yang mentions that you know he he freaked out that he got to continue that that big moment from the finale. Um, but I really like the conversation in particular where he mentions the story of uh, Zuko as a child on the beach, mm -hmm. uh, and there were the 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 two animals, and I don't I don't I don't have the page. I can't find the exact page. It was a turtle something and a hawk something. I, I, I think he yeah. just called it a hawk, but it was a turtle crab. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I remember it just being a hawk because that was that was interesting to me. So in the Avatar universe, hawks are just hawks. Uh, so <laughs> they're usually that's, that's, they're usually messenger hawks. That's the that's the biggest revelation in this book for me that hawks are just hawks. The power the power of hawks cannot be diluted. That's what I take <laughs> out of it. Hawks are uh, pure breeds. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a whole other colonialism issue, right? Wow. There. Okay. <laughs> um, so about the hawk and the turtle crab then. Um, page 98, by the way. Page 98, okay. And Ozai argues that, uh, you know, it wasn't that... Because I think Zuko thinks, you know, he's trying to say that he was weak and made the wrong decision. Uh, but what Ozai says is... Uh, and I think this, is per this perfectly um, illustrates Ozai's mindset. Uh, it explains why he acted the way he did as the Fire Lord, just the sense of entitlement. He says... Uh, some, he says something like uh, this is exactly what he says there is no right or wrong apart from what you decide who you choose to defend deserves to be defended simply because you chose them you are the fire lord what you choose by definition is right and I like that at the end of that conversation uh, he tells Zuko to get out and in effect even though Zuko is still fire lord in this moment Ozai still has all the control because he is once again banishing Zuko mm -hmm. from yeah. behind bars. Yeah. I, I love the fact that Ozai, even in prison uh, and without his bending, is still uh, Zuko's domineering, manipulative father. Yeah. And I think this shows that just as Aang uh, is breaking from the past, uh, you know, the, the, what the, trying to decide what the role of the Avatar is going to be in the future, this shows Zuko also struggling with what it meant to be Fire Lord before and what it means to be Fire Lord going forward. And, and I mean, the isolation it brings him leads to pretty much him losing everyone, including May who leaves and I'm pretty sure does not come back. Yeah, in this I, issue, I, right? No, she doesn't come back in this book. And I, I will be honest, I don't remember <laughs> if she comes back in any of the future books. So. I and so. I saw Cora, and I can't remember if they address this either. Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, if not, like I, I'm not happy. I'm, I'm very sad about that. But at the same time, it's understandable because Zuko basically goes into, he goes into like Azula mode. Like yeah, how Azula yeah, yeah. was in the finale, like he becomes completely paranoid about every. Like he he cracks underneath the pressure of being the Fire Lord. He thinks he hears things. He thinks people are trying to assassinate him. He's right once. Mm -hmm. One time he's right. All the other well, times. Well, well, I mean, he claims he claims that there had been five attempts on his life. Oh, okay, all right. Well, we, we don't that's... get to see any of those, so he, maybe those were imagined too. But he claims that. But yeah, um, the the main thing. Uh, if if she doesn't come back, which I genuinely can't remember, uh, then the way that this happens is tragic. And it, it's ironic because I was about to talk about another tragedy that comes out of this that I actually kind of like. Uh, but the May thing is tragic in a way that I don't like because, 
like we we all of us commented on how we loved the fact that she came back at the end of the finale and she had that great moment where she was like but don't ever break up with me again and we were like oh it's they're together that's so sweet um and then she's really kind of written she gets two scenes in the in the promise and um one of them is her being sad that zuko is is you know being pulled away from her and then the other is her saying nope we're done and walking off and that's really it's really tragic to go from where we last saw her in the series to this, especially if this is the last that we ever see of her. Um, that's the kind of tragic that just sort of breaks my heart. Like I'm really, I'm kind of upset about that. The, the other tragedy, which should be more significant, but I actually kind of like is that this re this, uh, Ozai, you know, once again, banishing Zuko, this whole, uh, Zuko and Ozai thing, uh, is it recontextualizes, the last scene of them that we saw in the series, which right. was like the triumphant moment of Zuko going to his father and saying, tell me, you know, where is my mother? And you're like, yes, that's right. Zuko, you're in charge now, <laughs> but oops, no, he's not. He's still just not. like, just like, uh, the way everything included in, in the finale here, we find out that in practice, it's all a lot more difficult. Yeah. It, and, and it leads, um, Zuko ultimately to making um, an alliance that I have to imagine he's going to regret and, <laughs> and dragging out even further down the crazy path, Azula. Dragging out fucking insane straight jacketed Azula. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. I'm super excited to see Azula. And I was also super excited to see that Gene loves her as much as I do. Uh-huh. So that makes me very excited for him to write her because I, I love I, – I have just – I love her as a character because she's so basically for all the reasons he says in the annotation, which is that she's complicated and uh, and just you know so deep and full of damage. So her getting dragged out, I'm I'm sad for Zuko because this is not going to go well for him, mm-hmm. I imagine. But um, I'm so glad to have Azula back in the story, and I love the I love the art on her yeah. in the in the straight jacket and the wheelchair. You, you can um, hear you can hear Gray Delisle doing the laugh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and since we're talking about this moment, I want to mention what uh, a piece of art that I really loved. And I do want to dig into the art in a, in a little bit. But pages 224 and 225, we have the last the last uh, page we see of Aang uh, sharing his culture with the Air Acolytes. Then on the, the, fa- the opposite page, we have Zuko talking to who we find out is Azula. And those two are their, their – the, the page, two page layouts echo each other. Mm-hmm. And I – I really like that because they're both coming to really big, decisive moments for them. Aang opening up and realizing he cannot be like if he wants his culture to continue, he has to be open with it. And then Zuko coming to um, an equally difficult decision, which, as Eric pointed out, will maybe not pay off as well for him. uh, That in order to find his mother, he has to bring his sister back into the game and i just really like the the duality of that and how the the the, the camera slowly pulls out from each of them uh, that, i didn't notice that that is fantastic that is great i, I want to point out one other thing about the parallels on these two pages uh this is an artistic choice um i i don't want to leave behind what i was saying about zuko yet but when we talk about art um i think it's worth okay i'll save this until we start talking about the art remind okay. me to talk about these two parallel pages but one of my Possibly my favorite moment um, in this entire book, and the thing you know, there there are 
a couple spots in here where I get, I didn't really choke up, but I was like, Oh, this is so, it's so moving and powerful to see these characters back and to hear their voices and everything. But the moment that actually like legitimately kind of, I had a little catch in my throat was page 216 when, uh, when Zuko is like, so I was right then all along, my decision was right. And then he just faints. Uh-huh. It's like, oh, my God, Zuko is so tortured that the real is this is again, this is him going good and getting sick because of it. This is, yeah. I mean, and actually, like, it's the culmination of the moment that starts when Aang goes Avatar State and he starts by trying to explain himself and then takes off his Fire Lord helmet uh-huh. saying, this is exactly what my father would have done. Yeah. Like his resignation that Aang is going to kill him at that moment is is heartbreaking. Yeah. And then it pays off in that moment you said when he's like, wait, I actually wasn't awful and can't deal with it. Yeah. And it's it's a wonderful, wonderful moment. And, and that and that leads to um, our our one real like Iroh scene where Iroh invents bubble tea, <laughs> of course, because of course he does. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a man ahead of my time. By the way, I love that we get to see Iroh, especially because there's that page earlier in the book that really makes it seem like he's dead. Like, Zuko, go, like, there's a line of dialogue in there where Zuko is like, I said I would never bother you again. Like, you, know, you just wanted to leave a quiet, lead a quiet life. But without that one stray line of dialogue, it really seems like Iroh is dead, and I was about to get so pissed. <laughs> I was about to be so angry. <laughs> Well, fortunately, he's not dead, at least in this book. So, and and actually, and, this and is doing this, something wonderful. Do it. Go ahead. Sorry, Arlo. I was just saying, at least in this book. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was awful. No promises um, for the future. Um, the it, but he is doing exactly what we would all want him to do, which is going back and running his tea shop in Bossing Say. Mm-hmm. Yes. That, no, no one gets a happy. Everyone else gets a complicated, um, further story. In this, you know, all the happy endings of the last one turn complicated in this, except for Iroh, who maintains his happy ending. Well, mm-hmm. Bubble Tea kind of complicates it a little bit, I guess. But... <laughs> he, is, he is also struggling with trying to make the world new and no one accepting it. Right? <laughs> That's beautiful. Uh, this scene in his tea shop, though, might be my favorite scene in the book. The the discussion between Aang and Zuko? Yeah, yeah the, their, their conversation together. Um, I love the... We haven't talked about the artist's annotations very much, because they... To, to be honest, they really haven't had that much to say in the annotations, but I like here where they say, you know, we tried to give Zuko a softer, slighter, slightly younger expression to show his relief. And uh, yeah, it really does. For at least a few of these panels, he looks much more just like normal. He doesn't he, look quite as angsty. He's back to hello, Zuko here. Mode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, so, yeah, I, I love this conversation between the two of them, um, and I love you know Zuko explaining you know his realization and Aang explaining his, and I in particular love when Aang says, uh, "Since Roku is my past life, mm-hmm. in a way, you're my family, Zuko." And you know Aang goes on to explain that he he's never been able to to detach himself from family, uh, and that's his flaw, and he accepts it, and. I, I, I love that moment. When he just straight refers to himself as a flawed avatar, mm-hmm. I, I really loved that. That was great. I, I love Zuko's, the page before that, where Zuko is explaining how he is, uh, uh, where he felt relief in that shared dream that they had when Aang, like, kills him. You know, I felt relief. I was wrong to ask you for that promise, Aang. 
Um, I love this conversation, the realization where Zuko explains why it was wrong of him to extract that promise from Aang in the first place. And that he wasn't asking Aang just to be a safety net. He was asking Aang to be his escape hatch right. if things prove too difficult. Yeah. You don't give yourself enough credit, Zuko. Oh, man. Just kiss already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we do. I now I really, I'm really, I really want to talk about the art, and okay. I, I. So this is the this is the least typical piece of art, but I would love to start with the um, art on 190 and 191, the the armies meeting each other yes. that they based that they based on um, Japanese battle prints and like mm -hmm. the lack of perspective, but the sense that you could see everything, and it is a gorgeous. We see a lot of two page spreads in comics, overused amounts of two page spreads. This is just beautiful and different. I adore this two-page spread. I, I want a poster of this. There, There is at least one. There might be more uh, collections, like a, a poster book out there that you can buy. I've never seen it, so I don't know what's in it, but I would love this particular spread as a as a poster. Yeah, this is f just phenomenal stuff. And I think it's the only two-page spread in the entire book. I think so. You... I really, I really like, like Eric said, we get way too many two-page spreads in comics for moments that don't really deserve them. And I love that in series like this, uh, and in fact, I think most of the series we've talked about um, in our four-color flashbacks over on Gobbledygeek, we've been lucky in picking series that only choose to use them for really Im important, unique moments. And I think this this is just a beautiful piece of art. I agree. Which is, which is not to say the rest of the more normal art isn't fantastic. Um, they yeah, really capture really the impressed. characters. I was really impressed because um, oftentimes when it comes to these tie-in comics, um, beyond just the, the writing not feeling uh, right, uh, you have artwork that makes it a little difficult to accept that you're in the same world as you were before. Um, but I think when it comes to comics based on animated series, I also think there's a tendency to maybe stick a little too close to the house style and not have it seem... Uh, organic, and what I love about Gurry Hero's artwork is that it very much looks like the world of Avatar. It doesn't skip a beat. You you're right back there, uh, but at the same time, there's enough. Like they're very clearly artists doing their own work, and I, so as a piece of art independent of the show, and as a piece of art, um, you know, tied to the look and feel of the show's animation style, I think it, it works completely. It's. I, I've never contemplated it this carefully, but uh, on a subconscious level, I guess I've I realized that um, the well, Arlo, like you said, the two difficulties with any sort of comic book tie-in, uh, any continuation of a film or a series, if it's a live-action film or series being continued, like I'll just cite the Buffy comics. Uh -huh. yeah, that's what I was thinking. You, of. you you have the problem of an artist who tries perhaps too hard to capture like real life actors um, on the page. And that almost never works. Uh, it's usually jarring. And, but then with animated properties, when you see those in comic form, it, I don't know, there there's like, for example, I've tried to read some of the how to train your dragon comics and that animation doesn't, 
in my experience, does not translate well right. to static images in comics. It just it looks just as off I've, to me uh, as live action stuff in comics does. I've never read those, but when I was a kid, they tried putting out some Toy Story comics, uh-huh. and even as a kid, it never sat well with me because because I I don't know if they're is a satisfying way to translate, you know, 3D computer animation to, to flat 2D comics images. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, with this, I don't know what magic they've managed to work, Great Hero has worked, but uh, it it captures the look of the animated series without... Uh, without feeling like it's being slavish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it it's really beautiful. And and they did a great job with um, making bending look great, which mm-hmm. is which mm-hmm. is very difficult in in still things. When, when when the thing we were praising about bending for so so long was how well choreographed and fluid it all was. Yeah, and they just lose that. They lose everything that made bending um, easy to do in the in the animation, and still manage to capture the feel of bending really well. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I have been flipping through this book, and I believe that you are correct, Arlo. That is the single double-page spread that I've been able to find. Yeah. That uh, didn't even didn't even dawn on me as I was reading it. So that's impressive. So hey, what were you going to say about two twenty-four and two twenty-five? Uh, yeah, those parallel pages. Uh, let me get back to those. Um, you're right; the panel layout mirrors each other. But if you look at two twenty-four, the Ang side. All of the panels are, first of all, it fills up the whole page. It goes full bleed. Uh, it goes out to the edge of the page, or what would be the comics page. Um, and there's no borders on those panels except like, except between the individual panels. Like there's no right. border edge. On page 225, the Zuko stuff, uh, the panels are all smaller. It's the same layout, but the panels are all smaller. They're all squeezed tighter, and there are defined black edges around all the borders. I feel like that shows that the Ang side is is open and like hopeful and ex- expansive. It's, it's a brave new world. It's optimistic. Yeah. Optimistic. And on the Zuko side, um, uh Oh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he's, he's still boxed in he, by some shitty decisions he has to make. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps. So. That's an interesting way to look at that. That did not occur to me. Yeah. That's great. And I like it because it means that they're just, they're just a little off. They, the two, the two pages are just a little disconnected, mm-hmm. which I like. There's one other thing where they didn't use borders the same way, and I think it was the dream sequence, or no, it was the um, it was the training thing because they were trying to show time passing. It was Toph yeah, building. Yeah, yeah. Was yeah. it Toph building the the um the monster? Was that what it was? The, yeah. the winged boar or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that was. I like that they they called out that they eliminated borders in that to to demonstrate time passing, which I thought was great. Um, this actually uses borders pretty heavily. The art, which is the kind of thing mm-hmm. that sometimes bothers me. But I think works really well in this. They, they, I mean, there's some pretty heavy, thick borders. Yeah. In in this comic, much more than much more than you usually get in comics. They're they're each individual panels for the most part. Not always, not always, but they're very commonly very delineated white and black border panels. And um, I didn't consciously have a problem with any of their layouts, but you can tell that this. Uh, that this pair, the Guru Hero duo, um, and they comment on this in their footnotes that, you know, this was kind of a learning experience for them. This is not necessarily the same kind of comics storytelling that they had done before this. And so they're figuring it out as they go. And the their panel layout system 
tends to be fairly simplistic, uh, yes. which which is fine. I mean, it works for this, but there's not a lot. There's very little, with the exceptions like what you just pointed out, uh, Eric, on page one twenty two, the the building the winged boar suit montage and the double page spread. With a few exceptions, uh, they follow pretty straightforward standard four to six grid layout. Which I think actually makes a sort of sense because as a piece of animation, uh, Avatar is not particularly experimental. Mm-hmm. It tends yeah. to use very, very, I don't want to use the word staid because that sounds wrong, but very classic and traditional animation editing and form. Mm-hmm. So I guess it makes sense for the comic to do the same thing. It was never a visual, it, the visual experimentation was what was going on in the scenes. Mm-hmm as opposed to the way it was edited or constructed. Yeah, I, I actually think that this makes sense for an Avatar comic uh, for that reason and also because um, these comics are, um, you know, I would imagine, especially since they were released in, like, the three, like, digest formats, which are a really popular format for younger readers, mm-hmm. um, I feel like this this makes it very accessible for people of, of all ages. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and uh, another piece of art I really liked on page seventy-seven, when Zuko is going to visit Ozai's cell, just the it's it's a silent page, no dialogue, and Zuko has uh, the lantern, uh, and I just I really love how evocative and atmospheric those images are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great in, piece in, of art. In fact, the uh, the note on the side the footnote from Guru Hero says we wanted the meeting between Zuko and Ozai to feel quiet so we avoided complicated panel layouts. Ironic since I think they kind of avoided complicated panel layouts everywhere but yeah. I really love how bright and clear and simple this artwork is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It could have been it, it's like I said it really feels of a piece with the animation artwork and it's not exactly the same because you can't just mirror what's right. going on in animation and comics, but it feels the same. You know, it feels the same. And that, and, and a lot of it has to do with it's very simple, it's very clear, and it, and it maintains that kind of clean line view of the, of the animation. And I love that in their sketches in the back... I was just going to say we need to talk about the... Yeah, they mentioned stuff. that because of the project they had, working, they had been working on right before this, when they first started, they gave all the characters... Uh, heads that were were like way too big. Yeah, so they had fifteen percent smaller. Yeah, so so in like every single one of their sketches, there's a note like new head fifteen percent smaller. <laughs> yeah, I um I love the art samples that we get in the back, especially the alternate cover possibilities that they show. Um, I wanted to ask you guys about this. Uh, in virtually every instance, actually, I think in every instance. Um, I kind of I prefer at least one of the alternate versions that they could have done to the what they ultimately went with. I don't think I looked at them that closely. I'm gonna that's something uh, I'm gonna have to go and compare. Okay. I was so fixated on the character stuff that I don't think I really dug into the alternate covers. Yeah. Uh, well, the character stuff is great. Um, once again, I'm glad that they went with uh, Ang's Shaolin monk looking outfit probably my favorite outfit that he wears throughout the series so i'm glad that they went with that yes um i i'm also i also really like the the change in zuko's stuff where they initially had him in very formal 
mm-hmm. robes, and I actually don't like that Fire Nation costume and his longer hair. I, I so I liked seeing the difference in what they were going for mm-hmm. initially and what he went with because I actually think it's it's a much stronger outfit. It's 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 it just it's it feels more forward, mm-hmm. and I so I really like it. I think that was the, a smart change on their part. But I like the other one is a very interesting piece of uh, what if art. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I like that they wound up giving him uh, shorter hair. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and the, in their original renderings of Toph, they made her too skinny. I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. She looks way too waif-like in those early images. Um, Katara didn't go through a lot of changes, apparently, in their artwork, although they did give her the, 15, heads, 15%, the 15% smaller. smaller head, yeah, which is a, a wise choice, I think. And the, and the big change on Sokka was their boomerang was too big initially. And I like the little note in the boomerang which says, please use this design and st- scale for the boomerang. Yeah. Like, yeah. please don't use our original one. That was a mistake. Is, yeah. <laughs> Just really, really great. I, I love this kind of thing in, in, like, collected editions. And my hope, and I don't know if this is going to be the case, and actually this is one of the nice things about us waiting on this is that Maybe, maybe we'll be lucky enough that the collected edition of Smoke and Shadows will be out by the time we get there. I think it's scheduled for September. I think. So, oh, nice! So we have a ch- we have a pretty good chance because we're not gonna re- we're gonna read that last, right? That would be. Yeah, that'll be the last one. But I think. Um, Is I it think between th- season three and four when we'll get there, or no? Between season one and two, two and three. Ah, crap! It's gonna be between season three and four. It's gonna be very close. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure we're gonna get there in time for that but fingers crossed fingers crossed well here's i'm gonna i'm gonna make a suggestion which is that if if it's like a couple of episodes different we i would say we can consider holding off okay and doing it in between episodes of cora in season four maybe hey, you know what we could do in between seasons three and four if we don't have a comic book to read the m night Shyamalan movie oh, we are Lord. not doing that between season three and four of cora no <laughs> why not <laughs> it's either that or we do it as the last thing Oh God, damn! You are you are. It's either that or it's the final episode of our podcast. You're history's worst monster, Arlo. I am. God. I am, and I, I relish it. Can't believe. Uh, uh, real quick, another another thing that I love from the sketches uh, in the back, uh, when the, there's the sketches for the uh, collected edition design, at the top they they put uh, like fake text on mm-hmm, the back. Mm-hmm, yeah. If you read one comic book all year, read this. Jimmy Hand Puppet. Jimmy Hand Puppet. My favorite uh, comics critic. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> all right. Well, that was great. That was fantastic. I'm I'm really, you know, I there was a part of me before I started reading this was like, oh, I want to get to Cora so bad, but I'm I'm so glad we I read this not just because it was fantastic and it was, but because it is a, you know, I feel like it sets up I, cause I actually agree with you, Paul, that there's there were aspects of Korra that I was like, how did the world get here? Mm-hmm. And even just from this one one volume, I think it makes it really clear how the world got there. Yeah, And I'm very excited about that. And um, before we actually – because this is our last time to talk before um, we get to talk Korra. So before we watch Korra. And I just want to say that I've been talking up Korra in some ways, and I, I just want – I want to be clear about what we're getting into here. So I know there, there, Korra is a little more of a divisive series than than Avatar in some ways, and I will agree that Korra has flaws that are different than Avatar. Um, so I just don't want to say that I think we're getting into a flawless series, even though I am 
I am very much in love with where Korra goes. And I think that there are plot elements that will frustrate at various times, and I'm not expecting that not to happen. So I just want to be I, – I never want to overhype something. And before we get there, since I've been, like, chomping at the bit to talk Korra, that I'm not saying we're not going to have our issues with it. Well, for the record, I've been uh, fairly open about the fact that I, I believe I prefer Avatar to Korra. And I, every time I've watched Korra, I have struggled with that show. But I do love The Legend of Korra, and I am equally excited. I'm su- the, the vagaries of our recording schedule have made it where... So we're recording this on a Saturday instead of our usual Wednesday, which means we actually have more than a week before we get to come back together and talk about Cora, um, which makes me sad. Like I want to, I want to record our first Cora thing tomorrow. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. I was thinking the same thing. Like ah, it's a week and a half before we get to talk Cora. Mm-hmm. But but I'm excited to get into it. I think it's gonna. I think it will raise some interesting discussions. And I think that I, I suspect my reasons for feeling the way that I do won't become clear maybe until the last season. So. <laughs> Well, but I mean, I don't really mean that it's not good, but I think that a lot of my feelings on Korra involve the payoff of a lot of things that may mm-hmm. have seemed shaky early on, but that I think it finds, you know, one of the one of the marks of good writing on on television is that you know you find the pieces that weren't working and you find a way to pay them off at the end rather than ignore them. Mm-hmm. And I think that one thing Korra really does is reevaluate um, all of the pieces it has left on the board and construct a final season that uses all of them really well. So um, we're going to hit things early on that will be like, is this, is this the best call? And I think that it manages to make really great use of them by the end. So um, anyways, I'm really looking forward to it. And if nothing else, the fights are just phenomenal in it. So This is um, true. This is true. So anyways, um, I just wanted to say I just don't want to be overhyping. I know I'm really excited. That's both to the viewers and to you two, especially to Arlo, um, that I suspect there will be complicated conversations on Korra when we get there. And I can't wait for them. I'm just excited to have an opinion. Like I real, I know I've said this before, but like I had a general idea of what Avatar was beforehand. I had seen bits and pieces of it before, but I really, I have not not seen like a single frame of like, uh, like I've seen like some still pictures, but I've not seen like a frame of Korra like in motion. So I really, I have no idea what to expect. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I I am excited. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited for this. Well, well, Paul, thank you for pushing so hard on getting us to read the comics. That was missing this would have been absolutely the wrong decision. So thank I, you. I'm overjoyed that you guys liked it. Um, thank both of you for talking me down from the ledge from doing all three volumes at once. Yeah, that would have been lunacy. Yeah, it would have been crazy. I'm glad we had uh, more time to invest in just this story. So uh, thank you, everyone at home, for joining us. As always, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes on the website. That's theavatarreturns.com. Links will also be posted on our parent show's site, gobbledygeekpodcast.com. Or you could just subscribe to the show on iTunes, and every episode will be hand-delivered to you personally by our flying email lemur. Uh, You can feed the lemur by dropping us an email at tarpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, we're all over social media. You can find us, you can like us on Facebook for all of our updates or follow us on Twitter. The show is twitter.com slash tarpodcast. And on Twitter, I am at haunt1013. Eric is at salon, that's S-A-A-L-O-N. And Arlo is at unplugged crazy. So next week, uh, a week and a half, sadly, from this recording, uh, we jump forward 70 years 
to the dawn of a new age, the birth of a new avatar, we begin our journey through The Legend of Korra with Book 1, Air, Chapters 101, Welcome to Republic City, and 102, A Leaf in the Wind, which I am going to mistitle multiple times as A Leaf on the Wind, thanks to <laughs> Joss Whedon, but it is A Leaf in the Wind. Until then, remember, though cast away am I from the heart of my city, Black tears dribble from mine eyes at the sight of the fearful trail blazing towards her gates. I can show you the world Shining, shimmering, splendid Tell me, princess, now when did you last let your heart decide? I can open your eyes Take you wonder by wonder Over sideways and under On a magic carpet ride A whole new world A new fantastic point of view No one to tell us 